Welcome back to Nerd Geek Dork, the podcast where we discuss the nerdy, geeky, and dorky sides of pop culture. I'm Mel Adam, and with me as always is Pete the Retailer. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about Weezer. That's right, Weezer. It's uh, the rock band that was formed in L.A. in, uh, I think, in 92, signed about a year later. First album came out a little bit after that. Uh, that album, like several of their other albums, was just called Weezer. They've been through various stages of popularity and, and critical uh, acclaim since then, and uh, and we're, we're going to address all that. Cool. And uh, joining us to discuss that are our friends uh, Tyler Susi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan Diener. Hi, I'm Jonathan. I'm from the Swellers. I am confident. <laughs> I just showed you up, Tyler. You suck. Yeah. Tyler did not even mention that he drums for a band called The Great Big Pile of Leaves. That's good publicity <laughs> to our millions of listeners. Thanks. Um, so how, how does how to start, Pete? All right. Well, I'll start with uh, when I first heard Weezer. I wasn't that into them. I have to admit this. Uh, I know sometimes, you know, there's some bands that you end up really liking that, that take a while to grow on you. But uh, somehow, like when that first, you know, the Blue Album, as it's called, the, the one called Weezer. Um, the first one called Weezer. Yeah, when that one came out, and I was like, all right, I, I, I don't know, something about it annoyed me. I'm not sure what it was. And then I actually ended up getting way into the rentals when that album came out. And then kind of retroactively, I was like, oh, okay, I, I get the Weezer thing now. Hmm. Now, the thing is, Jonathan and Tyler are a little, you guys are a little younger by a few years. Uh, so was Blue your first taste of Weezer, or did you guys come in during Pinkerton or anything like that? Uh, whatever Beverly Hills was on, right? <laughs> uh, I'm, eight, I'm, I'm 18, so. Yeah, that's, that's Pinkerton, dude. <laughs> you guys suck. <laughs> it's one of the Pinkerton deep cuts. <laughs> yeah, mine was, uh, I remember, Tyler, how old are you? I'm 27. Okay, I'm 25, so I'm even younger than you. Oh, so cool. Crazy. Uh, You're so much better than me in every way. I know. It's crazy. Uh, but let me, <laughs> let me finish, all right? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm on my pedestal. I don't want to get off. Uh, so uh, I remember our buddy came over. I was in, like, fifth grade, I think. And he had a Weezer cassette tape, and it was the Blue Album. And I remember seeing uh, Buddy Holly, the video, when it came out. And... I was in that weird developmental stage where I was like still cool with like the Spice Girls and Hanson, but also no <laughs> doubt and like anything that was on the radio, I'm like, yeah, this is the this is my favorite band. Yeah, it's great because it's on the radio, and so we would just buy like literally everything. And then when it and my brother got into Weezer, and I was just like, this is really weird sounding. Like I like I didn't understand like you know the fuzzy guitar noise and like how raw it was or whatever. So I was like, I don't like this. They look weird. I'm over it. And then, like, I didn't really uh, venture back into it until I was in, like, fifth grade or so. And uh, we were jamming with my buddy because he's like, I could sing. And I know you guys, you play drums and your brother plays guitar. So we just learned, like, the whole Blue album as, like, little kids that were just getting into music. And that was kind of my, like, accidental uh, stage of falling in love with Weezer, which is really strange. Like, I, I fell in love with them because I started playing their music. Hmm. That's, that's pretty cool. Huh. You could play Weezer songs when you're in fifth grade. Do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah. 
It's like it's like ACDC, but cooler. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. I was still on a practice pad then. I started when I was in fourth grade. I was a little baby freak. Just always ahead of me. Dude, it, it's nuts. Like, so <laughs> far. <laughs> Light years ahead, man. <laughs> yeah, I think my first Weezer experience was probably... I used to stay up to like 4 a.m. watching videos on MTV when they played videos all night. Mm. And uh, I mean, probably like the sweater song and stuff, because I used to they used to play that every now and then. But I think for me, it was also Buddy Holly's video, because uh, they used to play that so much on TV. Oh yeah, that was kind of when I started to get into them and kind of looking back at their music. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the first time I saw the Buddy Holly video, it's like, wait, why are they showing Happy Days on MTV? <laughs> and I was really thrown off. And then I realized, oh, it's a music video. <laughs> They're lying to me. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get excited for a second? You're like, happy to L. Yeah. <laughs> no! <laughs> you lied. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I was hooked on that album from the start. Like, the minute I got my hands on it, I was like, this album is amazing. It's just so, I don't know. It gives me such good feelings. <laughs> I guess the question is, what got you into it? Like, what was the video? What transitioned you into getting the album? Yeah, it was. De- yeah, because right. Buddy Holly was just everywhere for a while. You know, yeah. like we guys were saying, and that was it for me. That's the the funny thing. Like, I guess I mean I'm sure we're gonna go into a bunch of other topics, but uh, the actually whole, this like, is all we're talking about. Well, <laughs> sub topics. Just the Buddy Holly video. Just the Buddy Holly. Video. <laughs> yeah, and hanging up. Um, but like, I I was thinking the other day how strange it is that when that video came out, people were all probably like, "Well, here's another one hit wonder, cool, whatever," and they're kind of like brushing it off and having no idea that that was just going to keep lasting and lasting and lasting. You know, yeah. like uh, like one thing that was really weird for me was um, I remember like my first like big big show, like or at least a punkish band or like you know alternative band was I saw a Green Day and it was like uh, I think it was. Green Day, Jimmy World, and like Tenacious D might have been on or something. I don't know. Um, but uh, it was like early, early, like uh, it was either Bleed American or Clarity was on. I don't remember. But then right after that, we saw Weezer. And I, they, I don't even remember who they brought with them. But it was such a strange thing because it was the first time where I was like, I'm on the floor at a show standing. And there's like thousands of people everywhere. And we were all like freaked out. We're like, our parents aren't here right now. Like, we're going to be fine. It's going to totally be cool, you know? And it was weird because that was, like, one of the first times I was learning so many songs by them. Like, I, I don't think I even really understood Pinkerton yet, but, like, I think Green Album just came out when oh. that happened. Oh, that that's like, when they were with the Get Up Kids. Uh, they, that, toured, they toured for that album with the Get Up Kids. I, I didn't see that show, though. Oh, uh, okay. I, I saw the Get Up Kids. tour they did, Adam? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, saw, I saw Get Up Kids with Weezer, or, uh, sorry, uh, Green Day. Uh, I, I I read a bunch of we'll we'll get into that conversation later, but uh, but yeah, I I was so like freaked out because I was like, this band is so much bigger than I thought they were. This is crazy, you know. And well, I don't know, it's it's weird because it's like nerd rock, and then like you see that, and it like kind of changes your whole perspective and stuff. It's weird because like you said, you know, you didn't understand Pinkerton yet, but I, I think nobody understood Pinkerton when it came out because it was you know it wasn't a constant. It wasn't like, oh, like, yeah, everybody liked the Blue Album. Oh, and here's Pinkerton. This one's awesome. This is the best one. It was like everybody was kind of disappointed or something. Like, it it, it was, like, critically it wasn't, you know, really well well received and it didn't sell well. It, it sold like crap. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, like, the cool kids started 
getting into it. And like the cool kids would be like, oh man, did you hear that second Weezer album? And it'd be like, oh, right, no, I forgot they came out with a second album. And it was like slowly started to kind of burn like like a... I'm trying to come up with some kind of metaphor here, but you like, know, like a slow burn. <laughs> yeah, it slowly started to burn, like a slow burn. There you go. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, like then, kind of, I guess this would be kind of you guys that then st- kind of you know, the cooler younger kids started getting into it. From from my point of view, you know, you'd see kids that would be like punk kids, and then they'd be into Weezer and be like, really? Like I I I thought they were, you know, I didn't realize that they would kind of make it to the next generation of 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 kids you know like i thought they were just kind of like like you said just kind of maybe not a one-hit wonder but like a flash in the pan at least yeah yeah and then all of a sudden it just started to build from there that by the time the green album came out it was like oh oh okay now they're they're like a thing I think a big thing of it too is like the whole nostalgia thing where like, you know, you always hear people talk about whatever records and there's always that pinnacle record that everyone always brings up no matter what band it is. Uh, with Pinkerton, it was one of those things where like, you know, I got really into Green Album just because it was like straightforward, like you understand it, you know, it's one of those things where like, I don't have to think hard, whatever. But then like when I got to the, I guess, another developmental stage and like my the way my brain worked with music and everything, I wanted something more challenging and strange and like, had more emotional depth and that's why like Pinkerton hit really hard because I was like oh I'm getting older and things are sad a lot this is cool (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I mean I've Pinkerton's probably is definitely my favorite Weezer album probably one of my top three albums of all time and I've gone I've owned so many copies of it like I've just worn out uh like I've broken CDs I think I had it on cassette at one point um I even have one sealed CD copy of it that I've had sealed for pretty much over a decade now. That's like my emergency copy of Pinkerton. <laughs> it's a weird thing to have. In like a, a fire extinguisher? Yeah. My roommate actually wants to put it in a glass case that says break in case of emergency. But I feel like safe <laughs> knowing it's somewhere just in case I need it. That's awesome. Um, but I mean, I think what also kind of doomed Pinkerton was just how Buddy Holly was everywhere. I mean, there were some songs that weren't like super poppy on Blue, but everyone was so exposed to, uh, to you know, Buddy Holly and probably Surf Wax America, maybe in that same vein. That when Pinkerton came out, it was like, wait, this isn't happy. Yeah, what'd you mm-hmm. do? <laughs> I think like I mean, there there was moments on Blue where like, like only in dreams, you know, it was kind of like an extension of that. I feel. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and I guess an, another cool, uh, I guess crossroads or transition we can use. The whole Matt Sharp Exodus thing, I think that that's a really big part for it too. Because like, it's it's weird hearing that like weird, you know, the band got signed because they're writing these like strange pop songs, you know, but they're in like the the guise of uh, garage rock, and that was you know becoming the thing, and all these bands start getting signed. It was like, you know, like kind of riding Nirvana's coattails a bit, where it was like, okay, this kind of stuff is cool, but you're like the popular more like. Uh, I guess like it's easier to drink this type of band rather than that you know it's not as abrasive right. and then when Pinkerton came out obviously it was you know so over people's heads uh, but it, it's really strange to me because I always remember like it's it's got to be such a terrible thing having a whole, van, a whole fan base of people being upset that you ended up being happy later in life 
because your music changed. <laughs> and I know it's like, like obviously, you know, I'll say like, you know, Pinkerton and Blue are like my records by them. Like that's my favorite stuff. Yeah. Um, and then I guess I forgot when Make Believe came out. It was after Maladroit. But there's like lyrically on that, it seems like they really touched uh, a lot of like Pinkerton's subjects where like he was almost like apologizing for stuff. And like lyrically, it seemed like, oh, man, like he he gets it. You know what I mean? Like it's going to start coming back. And then obviously, like it went in a completely different direction after that. But it, it's really strange thinking about that. Like we, we wrote a song. Uh, there's a song we have called Do You Feel Better Yet? And I wrote the lyrics about just the idea of, you know, everyone wanting you to be unhappy because that's when you write your best music, you know? And like, you're, you're finally like, you have the two sides of like, I want to be like self-fulfilled and happy. And I want to make music that people care about and like back. And if you can't like put those together and it's one or the other, it really does suck, you know? So So I always wonder if that's like a thing that like, you know, Rivers or whoever struggles with, or if he's just so over it, he doesn't care anymore, you know? Because obviously he's super successful, but, you know, there's that weird, like, credible side where it's got to, like, haunt him a bit, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, at some point, you got to be playing to, like, thousands and thousands of kids a night, and you just can't be sad anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, also, with some bands, I know me and Tyler, we've talked about this a few times in, you know, just discussions, uh, is that, you know, you're trying to capture like a former like moment, like a success you've had, and sometimes you compromise what you want to do, like musically, and you like regress to like your former, like oh yeah. this was that moment that everybody loved. I'm just gonna keep doing that. And I yeah. thought I thought for a while that was Weezer, but then it seems like it was kind of like it was more so Rivers being angry about things, like the way but, it turned out. Yeah. I mean, I feel like most bands that do that, though, are, like, bands that are kind of on the decline and they're trying to chase that thing again. But as far as, like, Weezer, they just kept getting bigger and bigger through all of this, like, really. Yeah. They were, yeah. Already, they were already a part of that machine where they can really do whatever they want and it's just still going to be pretty big, you know? Yeah. I think, like, they had, like, I call it, like, offspring syndrome where, <laughs> like, you have three singles no matter what and then you can do whatever the hell you want for the rest. Like. Yeah. Like Offspring will have like original prankster, like that's like an actual song, and that They're helps. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah, and that paid for Dexter's Anarchy Airlines. The yeah, explain. yeah, I'm gonna uh, fly around the world. Yeah, <laughs> but but it's one of those things where like you know with Weezer, like they have those safe songs on their records, and then like once in a while they'll like you know they'll take that weird risk, whereas before they used to do it all the time. And to me and a lot of people, that's what got them into it in the first place. But yeah. realistically, like you know, you need that like that demographic of little kids, people who drive to work and pick up trucks and go to the gym and hear it on the radio and go, Oh hell yeah, that's cool. You know? <laughs> and like, and, and that's, and that's what I like realized is mainstream music. Like it's super unfortunate, but like the radio stations are always playing like butt rock and new metal and whatever. <laughs> and rock. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a when's, genre. When's your butt rock coming it's, a, it's a darker yacht rock. <laughs> oh, is that a Brooklyn thing? <laughs> Probably. Like, do you think that's intentional? Do you think that they're doing it, not necessarily to sell out, but do you think that they have kind of like sales in the back of their head? Or do you think that it's just like they grew oh, up what? kind of listening to kind of, you know, the 70s, 80s version of, you know, butt rock and, and new metal? Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying like them necessarily, they're doing that. But like in interviews, Rivers has said like, like you know, he's written like 5,000 or more songs, you know? Right. And one of those things 
that I always think about is like an interview where he just straight up said, he's like, well, I want to write big songs and that's it. And there's no like weird gray area. It's just, yeah, I want a song to be a hit. And to the point where he was like tapping other people to like co-write songs, like a dude from All American Rejects helped with one. Mm. And to me, I'm like, if you're writing like thousands of songs, I don't think you would ever need help writing anything, you know? So I, I think like after a while, it just became like playing the game, like the music industry game, just to like, you know, appease the, the guys in suits and then get over with it, you know? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I mean, I'm sure you might agree with this, Jonathan, but I think like when you reach different levels of whatever success you see as like a musician or a band, you kind of see what works and what got you to that point. So I'm sure it's one of those things where like subconsciously they just kind of know they're going to have to put a few of those songs on a record. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard that Rivers has like this encyclopedia of pop, like pop rock or something like that. Like yeah. it just he's just like <laughs> broken down the formula of writing a hit song. Like it's crazy to like, well, I mean, I, that way. it's out there. Like, it's a very known thing. Like, yeah. the song should be the song should be two minutes and thirty seconds. Within the first forty seconds, you should have a chorus. And like, you know, those are like known things in the music industry. So it's hilarious when labels will straight up tell bands like that. Like a label, <laughs> a label that was talking to Title Fight sent them an email one day, like, "Hey, like, this is how you should write songs." <laughs> and they showed me the email, and I'm like, "Oh God!" Like that. Nope. And look at them now; they're killing it. But it's yeah. one of those things where, like, you know, a guy that can't play music, probably. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, you know, there's just like strange things like that where it blows my mind. But it makes sense because that's what's palatable to people. You know, like this yeah. is before you lose attention. This is how like uh, here's the scientific method to having someone get hooked on a song. Yeah. Like it's it's messed up, but it's ear candy is such a thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I, I can kind of admire that other side, too, though. It's so, like someone that can write a really solid pop song. And actually, I mean, there's so many people writing those songs. So someone that can write one good enough to get through all of that, all of the other junk that's going on, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, because, like, you think about all, like, the cool experimental bands or the indie bands or the hardcore bands or whatever, and yeah. they're trying to, like, you know, get through, like, the like piles and piles of crap to, like, make it out on the other side. There's weird, like, I guess almost like fragile elements. That's a weird way to put it. But like, if you listen to Pinkerton with headphones, yeah. you know, you hear like weird nuances in the background or like even like voice, like Rivers voice cracking or weird guitar slides or like yeah. him just hitting the drums kind of like crap. Or but him that's, running, the, running after uh, playing the piano in Across the Sea. Like he goes to his guitar, I think you can hear. I mean, there's... Really? Yeah, I need, to, I need to go back and listen to that at some point. Those human characteristics, though, I think that's what makes most music and most records last for a while. I mean, most of the pop songs you hear today that are like those one-hit wonders, like you might, you might be able to hum along to it like five years later, but you probably won't know who it was by. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think that was like Weezer's biggest strength. And like a lot of, a lot of these bands in the same realm, they're able to kind of humanize the pop side of music. Yeah, a good song will stay with you forever. I mean, yeah. me and me and Tyler were in a bar last night, and aside from playing every single track off of Huey Lewis and the News's Sports, Tyler, yes. they played a lot of they played a lot of Weezer, <laughs> and it was like the Weezer songs you knew like a second in, you were like, oh yeah, that's what this is. Yeah, <laughs> this is great. But I mean, do you guys know about the original what Pinkerton was supposed to be? I know Pete knows this because we talk about it a lot. 
Well, yeah, it's the the play that or the musical Rivers was writing, right? Yeah, the Red, songs the from Black Hole. Reddington. <laughs> <laughs> and then they did Wait, a little a little more watered down version. They made yes. it yeah. But I I always hope that he'll release like a full he'll he'll just release that version because I've put that together with like the the cuts that he released on his like solo like his demo releases. Yeah, and it sounds so great. Like the. But, I, I don't think it was fully. I heard it wasn't fully actualized, though. Mm. Like I think it was like almost there, and then they're like, "Ah, eh, never mind." So I mean, like, to me, to me, one of those things like when he dies, someone's gonna own his music and just put it all out. <laughs> right. Michael Jackson will somehow buy it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I guess uh, one thing that like, you know, whenever people are talking about Weezer, like, Maladroit is one of those records that no one really brings up, but it's like a lot of bands have. Uh, they have like a weird pinnacle before they like either like go into like pop territory or before they go into strange territory. Like to me, uh, saves the day was stay what you are was like that weird pinnacle where they're like right at the in between. And then it, you know, it changed from there. Uh, so with Weezer, like, I don't know what they're, I think like to them, Maladroit would have been that record because green was so straightforward. Pinkerton was really raw. Blue was like, you know, the early, like, you know, straight up garage rock, but like cool melodies. That's, that's what made Weezer like appealing to me was just like, they're cool, different melodies. But then like all the records post Maladroit, like make believe was like, you know, pretty simple. And then there's that, what, two year span where they released three albums. Yeah. They did what red, uh, red Hurley and, and Ratitude. Death, yeah. And then death of false metal is <laughs> around yeah. that same time. And it like I don't know if a lot of that was getting out of their label so they could go on Epitaph or what happened, but like there had to be some weird underlying thing. Mm. But but like one one thing that was really strange for me was I went to go see them later on and they did a tour with uh, Angels and Airwaves and the guys in Weezer were like like they had Josh Freeze drumming, which is first of all one of the best drummers in the whole world. But having him play for Weezer just seems kind of unnecessary to me. Like yeah. everyone. Like, Everyone tells me that that was like the best live version of Weezer they've ever seen, but I feel like it's very uh, unnecessary. It was, it was, it was. Yeah, I saw them. I'd, I'd much rather see the drummer drum than play yeah. acoustic guitar. Yeah. Well, but, I saw I saw them play uh, the Pinkerton tour, and I was just like, "All right, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to get to see all of Pinkerton live." And they started the set by doing just like a bunch of hits. Like they play two sets. Like one set is just like playing a bunch of their you know standards, and then they come back and do Pinkerton. So for the first set, it's freeze on drums and, you know, uh, Pat's playing guitar. I'm like, wait, they're not going to play Pinkerton this way, are they? Because that's just sacrilege. I saw it in Chicago and I thought the same thing. <laughs> and I'm like, you've got to be shitting me. Yes. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm done. And then, yeah, then the second they did the intermission, Pat sat at the drums. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and, and it was awesome. Like, they did it really well. But it's one of those things where, like, you think about the time when they were writing that record and then uh scott schreiner the new dude well uh, newer he's been in the band for like 10 years now i know that's but, crazy uh, to think about but like the thing is he's like an awesome musician and from what i hear like an awesome dude and everything but it's <clears throat> it's weird thinking about like matt sharp's parts that like made weezer its own weirdo thing you know or at least that like those earlier records like the weird falsetto vocals and like the dirty stuff and then you know that all went to the rentals and then it kind of just got sucked out of weezer completely yeah so yeah. like that was weird too just seeing like him do like you know other parts that i was so used to with someone else it's just like it's stuff like that where it's like it's like a good example would be my dad shaving his mustache and i'm like 
I'm like, all right, Dad, I love you, but what the hell are you doing? What is this? This isn't right. Funny, funny side story to Scott Schreiner's awesomeness. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was with Tyler's band on the road, and I answered something on Twitter to his account, and he sent me a free copy of Portal Two, and that what? was awesome. <laughs> yeah, so my copy of Portal Two was a gift from Scott Schreiner of Weezer. Whoa. <laughs> I got home so from tour cool. and it was just there waiting on my bed. I was like, yeah, awesome. That's just a weird collision of worlds there. Yeah. <laughs> I saw, uh, were you there, Adam, the, when Saves the Day played Pinkerton? Yeah, that was, oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> That's probably my favorite Saves the Day and Weezer set. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was really good. I mean, the first real big show I ever went to was a Weezer show, and it was for the Green Tour, and that was kind of an adventure if you guys would, wouldn't mind me telling the story for three minutes really quick i'd rather you didn't <laughs> sorry just, it's our show and just clear my throat <laughs> and people are part of it um yeah i was there so i don't need to hear it I basically, <laughs> you can walk away i i really wanted to see weezer for the first time and all the tickets were selling out because it was you know they hadn't toured in forever and so i got tickets to a show in buffalo which is kind of a trip or no albany yeah albany new york so that's a trip Oh, is this the backpack story? Yeah. Can I slowly ruin it by interjecting the entire time? Yeah, sure. Okay, go, <laughs> so, go wait, I want to slowly ruin it by interjecting first. Uh, <laughs> they didn't really tour for, you guys were talking about the Pinkerton tour, but that's a recent yeah, that tour was, where they played like, Pinkerton in its entirety. They didn't really tour for Pinkerton, as far as I remember, or at least they didn't tour much. And they did a little bit, and then they just went on that hiatus for a while. Yeah, because uh, I don't remember them, I don't. I can't. Uh, maybe I did. Maybe they did play uh, New York on a Pinkerton tour, but I don't uh, originally. But I don't remember it because then I think the next time I remember seeing them is with uh, is with you on the Green tour. Anyway, back back to my story. Guys. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, so we took an Amtrak train to Albany, then had to pay a cab to get there. It's uh, middle of winter, I think, and you know we had brought bags with like CDs and stuff to read for the whole train ride. And it was a college show, and we found that we couldn't bring book bags. So we had nowhere to put them, so we buried them in the snow and then hoped they would still be there. And so we go to the show, and we're sitting, and Pete didn't realize that was my first concert ever, so he regretted not making me stand on the floor instead of being, like, seated to the side. But it was it was a pretty cool show. Uh, Rivers opened it with uh, I Do, which was a green B-side that still bums me the fuck out to this day. It's just such a sad song. And uh, it was also my first time seeing the Get Up Kids. And then after that, luckily, our book bags were still there. But well, we missed... Yeah, we started a trend, I think, there. that we're, like Right after we buried ours and other kids saw us, and they were like, oh, that's a good idea. And so like <laughs> there were like 20 you know book bags buried in the snow by the time we were done. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But we did miss the last train back, and so we had nowhere to stay. So I, I don't know how we talked the guy into doing it, but the guy who ran the train station just locked us in. And we spent the night in an empty train station eating Pop-Tarts. It was awesome. <laughs> well, you, forgot to, you forgot to tell everyone you had a puppy in your backpack. Yeah, I had a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> Keyword being had. <laughs> I regret never seeing Weezer with Matt Sharp, though. Yeah, I I, never, I saw <laughs> it. Um, that's it. You you do regret that. Um, I saw him with Mikey. Oh yeah, and then 
uh, Mikey died a few years ago. Yeah, it was like two years ago, I think. Yeah, that was super weird. I heard a bunch of crazy stuff about him. Like after, like he left right after Green, and like uh, apparently had some weird like breakdown or something like that, and that's like part of the reason he left or something. Yeah, I, he couldn't like he couldn't not could not deal with that. Yeah, that's gotta be nuts. Uh, I I don't regret not seeing them with Matt Sharp because I did see them with Matt Sharp. Shut up, you're old. <laughs> and I, I saw the I saw the rentals a couple of times too around that same time. They were they toured more than Weezer did. It seems like. I can believe it. I'm sure Weezer was trying. Well, was it post Pinkerton? Uh, no, it was right, kind of around. I don't. I don't know if it was. I, I first I saw them on the on the Blue album tour in uh, at like Roseland or something like that or, um, Weezer, and then uh, just just in case there was any confusion there, there was no, uh, oh, yeah. there was no Blue album tour for the Rentals. <laughs> uh, but then it seems like either that summer or like then like like the next you know maybe the next year then the rentals album came out and they toured i think they came around like twice on that so i don't i'm not sure what the timeline is the the first rentals album came out i think before uh pinkerton but i I should i should have looked that up i feel like that's such a foreign concept now to be like a band the size weezer was back then and put out a record and not have to tour like eight months out of the year to support it Yeah. yeah well yeah that's that's true that's so crazy. Well, I mean, these days it's so like you know, every everything's so flooded with stuff. I mean, you got people just making yeah, well, up music, yeah. putting it on YouTube, and then yeah. all of a sudden it's on the radio. I mean, it's, it's like it's the well, way people consume music now. There's way more variety than there used to be, so you have to fight to get through. But I mean, I feel like even bands back then, though, like they were touring a lot. Yeah, but then I, I feel these records just hit the right way, I guess. Yeah, but I feel also like, you know, VH1 and uh, MTV and channels like that back in the day helped to keep... Oh, um, they, had, they had tons of support back then. Yeah, because the music videos kept like you're, kept you aware of what was going on, you know? Yeah. And nowadays it's just reality programming. So, no I music mean, television. Well, the strange thing is, like, when bands toured a lot in the 90s, like, they were doing, like, full world tours and all that crazy stuff nonstop. Yeah. But the but the crazy thing is it made so much money on top of that, like right. with record sales and all that. And now it's like people tour because they have to. Yeah, they need to make money. Yeah, and I'm like, uh, like we're in like a weird boat right now where, like, when I graduated high school until last year, we the longest break I had was I think three months total, mm-hmm. and like we had our first like seven month break and I had to get a job and do all this other stuff and like be a human for once. Mm-hmm. But it, it blows my mind that like bands like that were just stockpiling money because they didn't have to, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, cause they're making like years of work in a single year. Whereas like bands nowadays, you know, obviously we're like, you know, a mid level band if you want to call it that, but like we're, we're making okay money, but it's like, cool. I paid my rent. Shit, I gotta get groceries. I didn't think about that. <laughs> we oh, should have put an extra track on that album, man. I know. <laughs> the iTunes bonus, man. But but that's <laughs> but it's so weird now because like obviously like I guess another argument that people always have is uh like for our band, uh we used to have a bunch of fast songs. Like when we started, I was fourteen years old and like from like fourteen till seventeen or whatever or eighteen, you know, we were just having like super fast records all the time. And then after that, you know, we started like either going to our roots, which is more like Weezer, Get Up Kids Saves the Day, or like 
you know, just combining other styles of stuff. And over time, people kept giving us crap about like, oh, play the older songs or like people wouldn't go to shows because they want us to play the older songs. And our response, like every other band is like, well, you know, we'll still play those songs, but we want you to like get, you know, get exposed to the new ones. And you can listen to the records if you like the older stuff. So with a band like Weezer, I always wonder if it's one of those things where they're like, we don't care, whatever. Like, you know, because they don't have to. (laughs) I mean, I think I think for like. Yeah, I don't know. I think for the longevity of a band, you kind of have to not care, even though it's super hard because you take everything anyone says super personal. But I think it's one of those things where if your your band's going to progress to where they're going to go at some point anyways, and a lot of bands take that stuff to heart and just kind of regress. And I think that's where they end up losing out in the long run. Yeah. Because even though, like, we, it's the same thing with our band. Like, you'll hear people that liked our first EPs more. And it's like, that's cool. And like, those are the people that are vocal about it. But that's also probably like a super small percentage of the people that are currently listening to your band. Exactly. So it's just one of those things like it, I almost wish people just wouldn't say it, but it's good that they're speaking their mind, I guess. But it's one of those things where I think it really affects a lot of bands and it causes them to, to slow down the progression of their sound and where they, where they could be going and even, even hurting how big of a band they could become. Yeah, I mean, that can even hurt the chemistry in the band sometimes because you have like some dudes like, hey, guys, we got to We got to write some of the old stuff. We got to We got to go back, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you listen to Green Album versus Pinkerton and that's what happened. Like it was terrible reviews. The record told him it was a failure or sorry, the record (laughs) label told him that. (laughs) And, you know, the record backwards. This is. (laughs) But 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 you know what I mean? Like it's there. We're saying like you have failed on this album it's not as successful as your first and being like a singer who's already like you know kind of like having some trouble that is just like it's not even a slap in the face it's like being like pushed off a building you know oh yeah so just shatters your confidence yeah it's like you listen to the record that he wrote and he's already like having such a hard time and then that on top of it so i almost think that what that did was like kind of this weird shock that like flipped a switch in his brain and then it's like pop song structure play it safe yeah. Yeah. yeah because it was like okay well this is where money is and like you know he's a super intelligent guy so it's one of those things where it's not saying like he's not writing good songs but he's yeah. writing different songs because it's like why why would he do that and like we recreate that thing from the past when he right. has access to better technology to make better sounding recordings and you know even and like guess, all that i don't know it's weird that that circles back to what you're talking about as far as like where bands have this one like 